life is not like a box of chocolates, but it is like cooking a meal. And a chef in a master restaurant has four hobs. And the hobs correspond to different parts of your life. There's a hob for your family, a hob for your social life, a hob for your work, and there's a hob for time for yourself. And just as when a chef is cooking up a masterful meal, the heat on the different hobs goes up at various points to different degrees. So as you go through life, the heat on these various hobs of life changes. Welcome to Priorities, the podcast about the things in life that really matter. I'm your host, journalist and coach, Lily Silverton. And each week, I'll be asking a new interviewee to open up about the things that are important and unimportant to them. What takes first place in their life? What they couldn't care less about? And what they'd like to work on a little bit more? Will you agree with their priorities? Will they make you reevaluate your own? Let's find out. My guest this week is journalist, editor, author, and general all-round media polymath, Amol Rajan. In 2013, Amol became the first non-white journalist to run a UK national newspaper when he took over the editorship of The Independent at the young age of just 29. Now the media editor at the BBC, Amol has a wide range of engagements. He presents The One Show on BBC One, the media show Start the Week and Rethink on Radio 4, and is also currently presenting Radio 2 Breakfast Show. He also co-founded a charity called Key Sessions, wrote Twirly Man, a book about spin bowling, and is in the process of writing another, and is an occasional judge on MasterChef. He's stunningly accomplished, but as you'll soon hear, incredibly down to earth and on a one-man mission to make the world a better place. Welcome, Amal. Hey, thank you for having me. It's nice. I haven't given enough thought to my priorities, but I'm going to have to now. <laughs> That's all good. We can roll into it. I'll start off just by asking you how you're feeling right now. How are you doing? Scale of one to ten. Um, I am feeling so I'm going to be annoying and split that into physical um, and emotional. Physically, I'm feeling uh, seven out of ten. Um, I woke up at four o'clock this morning because I'm doing mm-hmm. the Radio 2 breakfast show this week. And so I've just come off there and it's a sort of three hour blast of energy. And I've got two uh, young kids and I try to do as many nights as I can. So I haven't slept very much uh, this week. So I'm feeling physically slightly drained, but kind of also exhilarated by, uh, by the rush of being on air. Emotionally, I'm feeling somewhere between seven and eight. I find lockdown hard in its sort of um, claustrophobic containment of the human spirit. But I feel incredibly blessed and fortunate to have all the things I've got going on in my life. And I say thanks for them every minute of every day. So I, I'm sort of good, good place for both, but could be slightly better. What's it like doing the morning show? Oh, man. So it's wonderful doing the breakfast show. It's a really, I, I find all of broadcasting very peculiar, partly because I spent, far too much of my childhood watching Alan Partridge. And so whenever I'm about to do anything on it, I always think, what would Alan Partridge say? And so as a radio broadcaster, given he was Mr. North Norfolk Digital, um, I'm constantly thinking, this is a mole Partridge, my alter ego, not not really me. Um, but there's a kind of weird um, sort of dichotomy to my broadcasting, which is my main job is um, I work in news, which is a very strange, a very toxic environment, a very exhausting environment. 
Um, and, you know, I spent 10 years a bit or just under in newspapers. Radio 2, which I do for six weeks of the year, and I also, it's, it's basically broadly something you'd call entertainment. And I also do a show called The One Show Bit, and that's entertainment. And entertainment is much more fun, much more positive, um, much more sort of um, upbeat, basically. And Radio 2's breakfast show is just amazing. And as ever with all these things, the things that you're not aware of until you actually do the show is that most of the hard work is done by the team. So these fantastic producers... And they do most of the work for you. And you just get to talk to really cool guests. And, you know, I speak to really cool people. You know, this morning I was chatting to John Tarode, who is the Australian guy off MasterChef. And I was a restaurant critic in a previous life. So I used to do a bit of MasterChef and know him. And we just had a really nice chat. And it's kind of, it's really surreal. Um, so that's nice. Getting up really early in the morning is something I'm also used to because I've got kids. So um, all in all, it's kind of wonderful. It's probably just a bit much with the other jobs, but it's great. I really enjoy it. My um, other half will be furious with me if I don't ask this question because we're quite big fans of MasterChef in this house. Um, is the food always hot? Is the food always hot? How is it? What are John and Greg like? Like, can we spend the next hour talking about MasterChef? Are you cool with that? It's we could talk about that. We could, we could, we could talk about that for most of the time. So, uh, is the food hot? Yes. So, the, years ago when I turned up for MasterChef, um, the food was often not hot, but the, I think the standard of MasterChef has gone up very, very, very sharply in quite a short space of time. The food is always hot. It's really, really, really outstandingly nice food, whether it's the amateurs or the professionals. John and Greg are wonderful. Um, they are they work because they are very, very different. John Turow is quite classy. He's an Australian guy, you know, he's from Melbourne. He's sort of said yogurt. Um, whereas, yeah, Greg's a bit more like that. You know, he's the fucking right. My last word. He's a bit more of yeah, a rascal. Are. And he's, I'm a last word. Yeah, that's, you're not prioritizing good language. Um, Greg is a sort of, you know, he's a fruit and vegetable salesman from Covent Garden who, um, is on the side of the punter. You know, he's very much the punter's person and he sort of, yeah, he eats raspberry cheesecake. So I'm getting raspberry, I'm getting cheese. Whereas Greg will say, well, this wonderful coagulated protein is telling me that, you know, you've really got the soft flavors and textures working. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, and, and so they are a very unlikely pair, but we have a real laugh. There's quite a lot of laddish humor in a good way. Um, you know, nice, positive stuff off, um, away from the, um, away from the food. And there's just the really weird thing that I've got to tell your wonderful listeners about most broadcasting, which I hadn't realized until I did it. And it's as true of MasterChef as everything else is the amount of repetition my god so basically if you know if you're doing a kind of big judging thing and the food comes and you've got something to say about it like there's a souffle and lily's made a delicious souffle dolly's made a delicious souffle and you do this thing where you say um well this souffle is absolutely superb the texture is spot on the flavors are coming through i like the appearance of it it's not too punctuate with holes it's just got that airy and they go no no wait stop 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 can you just camera reset camera four four five reset camera one right mark you do that again and then you go this souffle is perfectly risen it's got the most wonderful taste no no stop god's sake can you just move to camera so you just find yourself like you so you're acting you're not you know you're meant to be natural and be yourself but you're actually performing repeatedly and that is quite weird but um it's wonderful and i think anyone that complains about getting paid to eat food should be um should not be allowed to to do it. So uh, it's a wonderful thing. And any questions when asked about MasterChef, I'm your man. All right, good. Well, probably I'll hold off on them for now and move on to your priorities. Give me your first priority. 
Um, my first priority is going to be um, a boring answer told in an interesting analogy. So uh, my first priority is always going to be my family, which is not um, hard to guess. Um, and the way I'm going to try and explain why my family, why my family matters is two things. The first is that um, I think that basically the most important thing in all of our lives which we don't think about enough, is the bonds between us. So there's a huge amount of uh, very strong neuroscience and social psychology and all that stuff in the last 20 years that shows that we are very much shaped by our relationships. And I think that our relationships are the most important thing in our lives, at the bonds between us. And if you ask most people when they um, are on their deathbed or looking back, what they wish they had done more of, it's spend time with people they love. And I have a very acute sense of that and so my family and the bonds and relationships I have with people are by far and away my top priority and I actually try and visualize them so I've got this really weird thing which is that I think it's a bit weird and strange that the most important thing in our life is something that we can't see and so I try literally to visualize them and this is slightly weird and your listeners going to think what's he banging on about but do you remember in Star Wars, there was this lightsaber moment where Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader going, and and Obi-Wan Kenobi's got these these massive blue and green lightsabers. I think of the bonds between us as like those kind of beams of emerald green or emerald blue light. And I have a very um, heightened sense of the bonds, the sort of the strength of that connection between me and the people that I love. And when you don't spend time with people, those bonds fade and they weaken and they attenuate. And I think it's quite good to imagine yourself um, as almost from above looking down at your life and seeing this kind of lattice or matrix-like structure um, and thinking the bonds you have between you and other people. So friends that you might know from university, you have this very intense, strong bond with them for a particular time. You leave university, you go off in different directions and those bonds weaken and you need to work on those bonds. Right now, the bonds I have with my immediate family, two kids, my parents, my brother are very, very, very strong because I work on them. And so my priority in life is my family, but I go a little bit further and say that it's nourishing and nurturing the emotional interdependence and the sort of interpenetration of souls, if you like, the bonds the, the, the light that connects me and, and those I love. Mm, I think that's so true. I was chatting to a friend of mine, Patrick, and he was talking about in terms of friendships as well, how you can have either a growth stage or a maintenance stage. And that with so many of your old friends or your parents or people that you have known for a long time, you get stuck in that maintenance phase where there's no growth within the relationship. And I don't know about you, but I think that lockdown has definitely changed. I mean, parenting changes it, but also lockdown has changed it in terms of people putting a bit more energy and effort into some of those friendships or relationships that had gotten stuck. Yeah, of course. And the thing is, you have to work on them. That's the thing in, in a good way. And it's the best thing in the world, working on them. So I, for instance, a few years ago, one of my um, closest friends, the guy who's my best man, and I was his best man, is a guy who you may know called Matt Bolton. And a few years ago, we just decided um, out of, uh, for no particular reason to, to get together, take a day off on a Friday in December and to meet. We thought, where should we meet? And we thought we'd meet near Hampstead Heath. And we met near, um, which is in North London for your international audience. And so we meet near a station called Gospel Oak. And we cycled up there. We went to the, the depths of Hampstead Heath, which is this beautiful kind of wild woodland and forest, really, that overlooks uh, London. And we found this incredibly enchanted, magical spot opposite a, 
house called Kenwood House, which is a, an old stately home. And it looks over this big sort of slope and there's this wonderful big sort of lake or pond and there's a bridge that goes over it. And we just stopped. We just, it was December. It was the first Friday in December. We just talked about the year and we talked about sort of how it had been and what we want to do the next year. And we then went and had a really nice lunch at a pub called The Spaniards. And this was such an amazing thing that we sort of realised that this was the best thing that we'd done for a very long time. Um, and so we decided to formalise it and call it the Kenwood Review just because it was obviously at Kenwood House. And we've done it for five years and it's definitely, I mean, I'm already, so I'm talking to you in early July, I'm already hugely excited about this year's Kenwood Review. And we got so excited about it, I realised it was so important to us to maintain and nurture that bond that we decided to institute a summer one as well. And so last Friday, um, we went up to Cambridge, which is where we met, and we have now, for the last three, four, three years, have, um, we didn't do it last week because he had a daughter, but we've for three of the last four years, we've just taken a day off on a Friday, met at King's Cross, we spent the day together. And that maintenance is a very good word for it. I mean, it's got slightly kind of negative connotations of buildings, I suppose. But um, maintenance is what we're doing with that relationship. And it's one of the most exhilarating things in my life. And we actually called each other a couple of days after and just said, that was so damn good. We always want to do it four times a year, but maybe time won't allow. <laughs> I love that idea. I'm definitely going to try that out with a few of my friends. Kenwood Review, you should do it big time. Institute with loads of some of the people that we have in common, Lily, some of the people we both no, I've got these institutional fixed times, these, these sort of dates. It could be in December, it could be in, in August. I've got these landmarks through the year, and I try and do it so that it's one a month. So I'm trying to institute them with my dad, I'm trying to institute them with my mum, my brother, three or four really close friends, and obviously above all, my beloved wife. Um, so having these punctuated moments which just anchor you in the bonds that make you is very important, I think. On a weekday as well. Friday, perfect. Take a Friday off, turn, get, you know, have a drink on a punt, bob your uncle, home in time for bath time, which will be a lot more fun uh, having been to Cambridge for the day. And then you can make it a long weekend. Do you have to schedule a lot in with your life? You're, a, I mean, a complete underachiever and barely do anything. Yeah. So uh, lots of free My time. Hanging out. My life is just hanging out, chilling out. Yeah. 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 Um, that makes it just, yeah, it's true. So, yeah. My life is uh, extraordinarily scheduled, um, um, like extraordinarily scheduled, um, whilst also having this weird thing that I work in news, which is interruptible. So something can happen and you have to sort of jump to. And I, one of the reasons I find it very hard working in news, increasingly unbearable, is that it's very, very hard to reconcile news with. Um, uh, having a family, you know, as you know very well, when you have a, uh, when you have kids, you need to know ideally what you're doing and when, and you need to be able to structure your day. And so, being constantly interrupted by unpredictable events is very, very hard. But on top of that, yeah, I do a lot. I do a lot. You know, I've got, I've got a couple of big full-time jobs at the BBC. I run a charity. I'm writing a book. Um, I take, I've taken on significant new kind of work at the BBC. There's this new massive podcast. Um, project across Radio 4, Radio 5 that I called Rethink across the BBC World Service and it's a huge amount of work it's a huge, huge, huge amount of work um, there's like 54 podcasts by some of the world's leading thinkers and I've had to write intros and whatever for them that's a, you know, it's hours of work every week um, and that's that's tough and so I, I've got several jobs and I, yeah, and I I am massively, massively scheduled but I kind of don't mind that as long as um, I clear huge amounts of time as I do uh, to be with my family mm. do you think you're naturally organized um 
I'm naturally organized in some spheres of life. I'm naturally very organized. I think the word, I think conscientious is the word. So you can sort of strategic in planning what you're going to do. Um, and I'm very organized in those parts of my life. I'm less organized in other parts of my life. So I wouldn't want, if I said I was organized, it would be deceitful for me to <laughs> encourage people to think if they came around to my house, they'd see sort of iron boxer shorts and a pencil case where, you know, all the, the pencils were arranged in descending or ascending order of sharpness. Um, but I'm incredibly organized when it comes to time. Yeah. Like exceptionally organized. So about 10 years ago, I was having a really difficult time, um, at work, work with some very difficult people in newspapers. I think it's 2011. And I went for a bike ride in a spot of North London that some of your listeners might know called Parkland Walk, which is an old disused railway line that goes up from Finsbury Park to Highgate. And a bit like the Kenwood House moment, there was this wonderful moment, the light kind of, you know, came pouring through the leaves and there was this wonderful dappled effect and all the leaves were on the ground and they looked like a billion smashed Marmite jars. And I just decided to make a list of things I wanted to do and it so happened that it was towards the end of the year, so it turned into resolutions. And the following year, so 2012, I pulled off all those resolutions, there's about a dozen. And since then, every year, I've added more and more so that every year I have about 120 resolutions broken down in terms of priorities. In terms of priorities, family, health, because it's all useful, useless if you're, um, if you're dead. Family, health, work in different bits of work, you know, work with BBC, work with the book, work with the charity I run. Um, and in fact, above that, friends. And, it's, and as my mate Af said, that's not a list of resolutions, that's a plan. But I, I can tell you that in the last few years, I've had a between, I think one year, 136, and I've done all of them every year for the last nine years. So that, that's the answer chronic, to the question. Am I chronic underachiever. So but it's, it's, it's the thing, achievement is, um, I may have been gloriously sarcastic. Achievement has kind of connotations, which, um, not that you mean these, but achievement has connotations of, of almost sort of, um, a grasping pursuit of power or a sort of grasping ambition. I come from a slightly different way, which is that I want to lead, I want to lead a morally and, and something that materially as full a life as possible. And mm-hmm. I think all of us have two careers. Uh, we have a, which correspond to the two, two different kinds of wealth. I think there's material wealth, which is money. And I think there's moral wealth, which is love. And I would choose moral wealth over material wealth every time. And I think that we talk a lot about our material careers. Our, you know, what position did you acquire? What rank did you get? When did you achieve this status? And w- w- in terms of achieving stuff, most of the things that's on my list of 120, 136 things, they are genuinely immoral things. You know, they are do this for this person. They do this for this person. Nourish that relationship. Look after that person. Grow this person. And so, they, they, yeah, when you say underachiever, I, yeah, I'd like to think I'm to the extent that I try and achieve, I try and achieve more for my moral career than my material career. Yeah, you definitely do. And it comes across in everything you do as well. I love that idea. I always work with sort of setting some sort of plan or intentions. Um, resolutions isn't a word or an idea I particularly like, but having a plan, having a something to work towards is just so motivating and so focusing and can improve everything else about how you're feeling quite quickly yeah because it's it's future oriented what do you like about the word resolutions I'm intrigued it's probably the connotations of here's my news resolution i'm gonna 
I don't know, lose weight. I'm going to stop smoking. I'm going to do all these things that no one ever does. Or, you know, I failed at my resolution after three days. I'm not necessarily against the word itself at all. Probably a bit like with Achiever. Yeah, it's the associations of what I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What's your next priority? Next priority. Can I answer that with an analogy please which is I think that li- I think that <laughs> life and now okay sorry I'll give no, you a you simple can. answer no you can you definitely can no no do I'll it. give you a simple no, answer no I, I don't want it I don't, I, want know, I don't know that I, I don't know that I have a, an immediate next priority I mean my immediate next priority is it's my birthday and yours in two days because we have the same birthday and my immediate next priority is to arrange a birthday morning which is special for me and my family and I know that my incredible wife Charlie has already got various things my son Winston I've been going BMXing with him on Saturday mornings and I'm trying to work out whether or not um so this is this is a boring domestic answer sorry but you know you asked for it so my priority (laughs) is working out whether or not I'm going to take Winston uh, and my family BMXing because he loves BMXing he's really discovered he's only four or whether we're going to stay at home and cook chocolate and tahini brownies, which I'm quite excited about, and watch The Lion King, which we've never done before. That's a boring answer about my actual priorities. Um, uh, I've got sounds a priority, like a great Saturday morning, though. Either sounds way, like a fantastic Saturday morning. Yeah, and then I'm going to go and see all my mates on my birthday. That's, yeah, exactly. If we're allowed, which we might not be because lockdown rules. Um, the analogy, the boring analogy was um, so. Um, life is not like a box of chocolates but it is like cooking a meal and a chef in a master restaurant has four hobs and the hobs correspond to different parts of your life there's a hob for your family there's a hob for your social life there's a hob for your work and there's a hob for time for yourself and just as when a chef is cooking up a a masterful meal um the heat under different hobs goes up at various points to different degrees. Um, So as you go through life, the heat on these various hobs of life changes. So when you're young, a lot of time for yourself and your mates work, not very much, family, not very much. Um, I'm in my mid-30s. I'm 37 in a couple of days, mid-30s. I'm I'm actually really, really old. Um, And my (laughs) the hob of life work is up to sort of super maximum it's not actually full maximum uh, in my previous life in newspapers um i worked harder than i did now i worked 100 hours a, a week often and it was crippling um, but i didn't have kids but my work is very very high my family is super high i've got elderly parents who i look after as much as i can i've got young kids um that's wonderful and a blessing time for myself my health i, I do a lot of, for my health um but probably not as much as I ought to. And my social life is just not what it used to be. I'm a very gregarious person. I I don't get to see my mates very much. So the analogous answer for your question about priorities is that I'm trying to just check my priorities, make sure that I've got the heat just right on the various hubs of life. Mm. (laughs) I like that. Pompous answer. You like that? Yeah. That's a a master chef answer there. John and Greg would be very happy with that one, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they'd love that. They'd love that, actually. I might even have got it from them. How long were you editor of The Independent for, Amor? Just under three years. So just under, yeah, two years, nine months. How does it compare with working at the BBC as media editor? Um, So The Independent was 
it was very, very different. Um, there is a certain sort of, you know, there is still, I took over in 2013, I was 29. There is, there was a sort of, there's still in newspapers, a kind of cult of the editor, you know, you're, you're, you've got a PA and you've got an office and people kind of, you know, your decision is final and your job as leader is to make decisions. Um, I loved leadership. I really enjoy leadership. I think leadership is an incredibly important thing and um, I really care about doing it well. Um, and leadership is about moral leadership, about having a plan, but also having the character to execute a plan. And that was really fun. But there were two things that over shadowed it in a very, very big way. And one is that, you know, the independent, all newspapers are, there's no editorial solution to the commercial problems of newspapers. Newspapers are, um, are struggling and the independent was always going to stop being a newspaper and become a digital publication. And my job was to try and keep it going and make it as good as possible in the meantime and keep people in jobs uh, and produce, you know, world-class journalism, which I'm really proud to say that we did. And we turned it around commercially, but that was very, very tough. You know, there's a lot of stackings, um, a lot of redundancies, a lot of, you know, crises, uh, of not having enough uh, money, a lot of people were out of jobs, all of that stuff. And then finally, there was the big traumatic shutting of the paper, which is very difficult. And so that commercial horror story, well, actually, it was a positive story, but it was just involved a lot of pain for a lot of people. And I had to front up and have over a thousand very, very difficult, very honest conversations. Um, that was one way of it being overshadowed. The other is that I worked for um, a guy called Yevgeny Lebedev, who's, who um, I'm not close to anymore, but for five and a half, six years, I was close to. He's the British-Russian owner of the Independent and the Evening Standard. We uh, were very, very close. We were very, very close, but working for him involved, um, it was a very, it was, it was an exceptionally demanding, very, very, very full-time job, as big psychologically and practically, if not bigger, than running the newspaper and turning the business around. Um, and it involved a huge amount of travel. So that was that was another, that which, which is not fun. I mean, when you're, young the idea and it was cool I got to go on private jets and I hung out with lots of celebrities and had dinner with Elton John regularly and went to the Oscars and stayed in the best hotels in Europe and New York <laughs> sounds fantastic actually not that fantastic and and I'd say in a weird sort of way one of the great blessings of my life is that I could go into my 30s and I would say that someone acutely aware of the specific privileges that I've had growing up but it's really cool to get into your early 30s and know that that's not what you want, that there's an emptiness, you know, that the bonds I'm talking about between people is what keeps you happy and makes you happy. So that was full-on, intense, 90, 100 hours a week, very demanding. BBC is incredibly different, partly because um, I now have kids. My son, Winston, was born a week after the independent shot, so I have very different priorities, generally speaking. Uh, but the media editor thing is wonderful and interesting because I've kind of covered up what I think is the biggest story about the time which is the way in which a few technology companies have acquired such astonishing power and created the biggest asymmetry of wealth and power and information in human history um, I find it quite weird being a specialist um, as media editor as when you run a newspaper you've got to know about everything so I find it quite weird being a specialist but the BBC has got a huge amount of other stuff to offer so I do programs on Radio 4 and on BBC One and Radio 2 which keep a sense of, sort of intellectual diversity. So the BBC is different in that way, in that, you know, I'm not running anything. I'm not in charge of a staff. I'm not a leader. Um, and I've got a huge amount of kind of variety here. But um, I do miss leadership. I do miss leadership big time, which is partly why I set up a charity. Tell us about the charity. Key Sessions. Um, charity is called Key Sessions. Uh, key stands for Knowledge Elevates Youth. I set it up with... Uh, a wonderful human being called Afalabi Oliver, who is a friend of mine from university. And the simple idea 
is that we, it's a summer school, it's a summer academy in East London, off Brick Lane, for inner city kids in London. And the um, starting point is the insight or the knowledge, and it is, this is brought out by countless evidence, and I'm writing a book about this, and I can tell you it's absolutely true that extraordinary success of the material kind, not necessarily moral kind, which is more important, but career and professional success doesn't come from extraordinary talent. It comes from extraordinary opportunity. And you can create opportunity by making connections between people. So what we do is we get lots of really inspiring people in their sort of early to mid-30s who've done brilliantly in different um, sectors, and we get them to give these sessions, and we get a mixed, incredibly participatory classroom, five or six people from five or six different schools, uh, state schools from all over the capital, and they come along and they have these really brilliant inspirational sessions where they learn about different careers. So you have a day for law, a day for being an entrepreneur, a day for media and the creative sectors and so on. And this gives these kids who are 16, 17, thinking about university, it, I can say honestly that it's completely transformed a number of lives already. And my plan and with AF is to roll this out, make it ever bigger and completely transform the fortunes of hundreds, if not more, if not a lot more um, kids uh, across London. Just in practical terms, it'd be good to do it beyond London, but you know we have to be there. So that's, that's hard. And it's about giving them huge insights. So if you're 17, you've never thought about the law, you want to know what the law is or you want to know what it is to set up your own business. It's about giving them a real insight into that. It's about giving them fantastic inspiration. So just, you know, kids from Felton who've never been to the city turn up, see Brick Lane, they see these shining, gleaming towers. They feel inspired. They feel kind of a world opens up in front of them. And it's about creating connection and new forms of social capital that allows them, you know, some kid from a backwater that's been completely neglected and grown up in a difficult home, difficult circumstances, it gives them a chance to get an internship at a really top firm and so change your life. So it's, it's, it's a modest and small for now, but um, we started small and we plan to um, change the world. I love sleep. Seriously, it's one of my biggest priorities and I'm a different and much improved person when I get my full eight hours. So I'm incredibly excited that this season of Priorities is sponsored by Sleep Siren, an independent lifestyle brand fueled by a passion for health, wellness, and great sleep. Sleep Siren brings together science, education, and luxurious products to offer meaningful support to busy people who could sleep a little or a lot better. As the mother of a toddler and having suffered from insomnia on and off my entire life, I know firsthand how helpful Sleep Siren can be at identifying and covering your sleep needs. Whether you're looking to read an expert article on the latest sleep science, treat yourself to some insanely soft silk pyjamas, or simply find a luxurious eye mask, Sleep Siren have everything you need to sleep well tonight. If you would like to improve your sleep, I'd love for you to have the same experience as me with Sleep Siren. So they're offering 20% off with the code PRIORITY20. Check them out on www.sleepsiren.com. Thank you to Sleep Siren. Nutrition is a priority for me, and I know that the more plants I eat, the better I feel. However, with a busy life, I, like you I'm sure, don't always manage to get my daily quota of greens. So I'm very happy that this season of Priorities is sponsored by Foga, a new brand that makes plant shakes, pre-portioned blends of freeze-dried fruit and veg that you simply shake up with water or milk to create a restaurant standard smoothie at home. I'm not really into protein shakes or powders. However, these are genuinely amazing. They're so easy and delicious. Right now, I'm digging the ginger and greens combination, and my daughter is a big fan of berries and cinnamon. They contain zero extra sugars or chemicals, 
through freeze-drying, have all the nutrients locked in, and they're whole plant, meaning they have all the fiber of fresh fruit and veg. It's really the lazy person's dream. If you're looking to easily and affordably prioritize your nourishment, then I'd love to find out if you enjoy FOGA as much as I do. They're offering five pounds off your first box with the code PRIORITIES. Check them out on www.foga.co. That's F-O-G-A. Thank you to FOGA. Is it something that you've focused on for some time, right? You did How to Break Into the Elite for BBC Two. Documentary. Yeah, it's really weird. There was a really, there was a really um, strange, that was purely coincidental. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I've worked in the charity sector for a very, very long time. So um, I was involved in youth clubs as a kid, helping people out. And I was a street worker and then a trustee. And I'm now patron of a charity in Islington, uh, which works for kids who are involved in very difficult stuff called Prospects. Um, yeah, me and I've got together about four years ago. Brandon, we had lunch. And we just were both at the same place in our lives where we were thinking, less about our material careers and more about our moral ones. And this is really about trying to, maybe it's about solving my own guilt so that I feel like I'm doing something purposeful in the world. And um, as someone who can, has considered how else I can actually improve the world, this is my way of doing it. Because, I mean, journalism's got a, a place and it's hugely important and I really believe it's a noble trade. It's not a profession, it's a trade because it involves a skill. But it doesn't fully scratch my moral itches. And key sessions allows me to do that. And by moral itches, I mean, I think there are four or five different ways or four ways really you can improve the world. You can spread love, you can reduce suffering. And I think those are the two ultimate moral goods or bads. Uh, you can increase knowledge through science, for instance, um, and you can fight injustice. And key sessions allows us to reduce a bit of suffering maybe in some ways. It certainly helps us to fight injustice and it certainly helps us to spread love. doesn't really increase knowledge, but um, I'm working on that. Definitely increases knowledge. Does that exactly well, increase students? It, but it doesn't, it, it, that's true. But it doesn't increase knowledge in the sense of it doesn't find you a vaccine for coronavirus. That's, yeah. It increases their knowledge of specific things, yeah. And that's your moral quadrant. That's my moral quadrant, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, which doesn't directly correlate to my hob of life, which is another quadrant, but um, that's my moral quadrant. And the nice challenge for your listeners, thinking right now, you could, after this podcast, think, well, that was a weird-sounding, slurry, tired, fat Indian weirdo. But he was banging on about, he was, he was banging on about this. And they might go home to their partners and say, you know what, what's my, how am I doing on the moral quadrant? Have I, have I fought injustice today? Have I increased knowledge? Have I spread love? Have I reduced suffering? And um, I'd really recommend them after they've worked out their priorities and, and, and taken the advice that you've got for them, I'd recommend they go to a website called The Life You Can Save, where, you know, the Australian utilitarian Peter Singer has come up with a very clear manifesto for how you can make a meaningful difference in the world. And actually, you realise your moral power as a human being, especially us, you and me, Lily, where we live, the things in front of us, you know, your moral power is so immense. You can do yeah. such good in the world. It's huge. What's an area you can care less about? Oh God, I've been really struggling with this. Because I, I know a bit about how you operate and I thought you might ask that. And I've been thinking, what do I... I mean, it would be good to... You know, it wouldn't be good. I, I could pretend, I'm, I'm being very honest with you, I could pretend that I don't care what people think about me, but I do actually. I like it when 
I have people's respect and or people and love. I love love. Um, so I, I'm not going to give you a pompous answer about. I don't care what people think about me. That's not true. Um, I don't really care about clothes, but I'm going to open myself up to ridicule. And I do think the fashion industry is beyond appalling in so much what it does. And I say it to someone who knows about the fashion industry. and knows worked about, in no, it for ev- many, many years. Yeah. And evidently knows about um, and clothes. Yeah, I mean. And yeah, who feels I mean, the same way about the industry, having worked in it. Why do, why do you feel that way about the industry, having worked in it? I just don't think we need much stuff. I don't think we need to be pushing so much stuff on people playing into their insecurities. There's beauty and there's talent and there's immense talent, especially in the UK among young designers. Their work is incredible. But in terms of pushing another shoe or mass producing items that will be disregarded a couple of weeks later or maybe even never worn, left at the back of the wardrobe, just none of it makes sense to me. None of it makes sense what, in terms of what you need for the world or, you know, you think about your moral quadrant. It's. Did, did you always think that or did you come to that view? Did you always think that while you worked in the industry, did you have a sort of inner turmoil about it or, mm. or did you have a sort of revelation later on? No, I always felt it slightly. Even when I, when I first joined Pop Magazine as an editor, I think I was 25, 26. And I, at that time, gave up buying anything new for two years. So it's something that's being done loads at the moment, which is brilliant, seeing it with Extinction Rebellion have started a big movement. But I gave up buying anything new because I was surrounded by all this new stuff, surrounded by this idea of selling. And obviously I worked as features director, so I wasn't specializing in fashion, but I was right in it. And I did all the shows and everything. Gave up buying anything new, just shopped at charity shops and um, vintage stores and so on. And yeah. I was very much aware of where, what I was getting myself into. I also made fashion films for a bit and then gave that up because I couldn't deal with the idea of helping these people make lots and lots of money. What did you conclude about the effect that fashion has on young girls and their mental health growing up? It's a tough one because I don't think it's just the fashion industry as a whole. I think the beauty industry plays a massive part. But I also know that when I was growing up, I loved bits of fashion and beauty. And I and I got a lot of pleasure from that and a lot of joy. And I see, you know, my goddaughters or younger women who get a lot of joy from it. So that can't be denied. And as I say, a lot of people who are very talented at what they do. And that is mm. their art and that is their craft in the same way that you and I write or interview. That's their craft. That's their trade. However, I think as a society, we're pretty screwed in terms of what we think of women's bodies, what we tell women about their bodies. And I don't think that's limited to the fashion industry or even the beauty industry. I think it's out there. I think that's so right. I think it's so right. It's so wise. Um, I talk about this quite a lot with my uh, astonishingly, not astonishingly, but extraordinarily clever wife who um, is an anthropologist. And uh, I've sort of, you know, I've often, I've, I've thought about it a lot over the years, but I, I, I feel a kind of radical re-kind of coalescing of my thoughts because of having a daughter, where I'm, to be completely frank, you know, in terms of my priorities, I'm really worried about what it's like to be, I don't, because I don't know what it's like to be a girl growing up. Uh, and I don't mean that in a kind of fuddy-duddy, oh, I'm worried about screens and screen time and then addiction. And I just think, 
from what I can see, and I don't know, and I don't mean this in a patronizing way, because um, I'm fully signed up to, you know, the principles that govern uh, the idea that, you know, girls and women should have rights which they've been denied through most of human history and a dignity which they've been denied through most of human history disgracefully. But I just think it's, it just seems to me to be really hard being a girl um, in a certain culture at certain times, harder in many ways than being a boy. And I think that the fashion industry is probably a big part of that. And the projection everywhere, aggressively, unconditionally, and uh, you know, unhesitatingly of certain ideals of beauty, you know, so my, you know, I'm overweight and, and um, this is not an invitation to conference, but you know, my daughter looks like me, which is terrible <laughs> for her. I mean, I think she's, you know, she's called Jamaica and she's, to my mind, the most beautiful thing that's ever existed along with my son. But, you know, I'm just, I'm just, just this constant being judged. And, you know, I, I've much more than you and from a position of much greater in, ignorance, um, evidently, uh, I've reacted pretty, you know, metaphorically speaking, pretty violently to the attempt by the fashion industry to dictate aspects of our culture based on nothing other than subjective assessments of what's beautiful and i agree with you i think it's so interesting and revealing that the first thing you said that there, there was that there is such a thing as beauty but you know you once put a picture up on on facebook i think of your grandma who i've not checked whether or not she's still with us and i hope she she's is not, uh, really... she's not but oh i'm so sorry <laughs> no, i'm so sorry okay. dolly's named but after I'm... her oh wow okay well dolly senior the yeah. late great <laughs> I remember being mesmerised by her beauty. I don't mind me saying she's an extraordinarily beautiful creature. And um, but I don't really see the fashion industry going out of its way to send people like her down catwalks. Um, and I think that's disgusting. Yeah, anyway. I agree. When I worked at um, Hunger with Rankin, the photographer, he did a lot, and the whole team there was the most brilliant team I've ever worked with. Um, and they, the editor Holly, and the fashion director Kim and Rankin who oversaw all editor-in-chief, did a lot to try and change that. So we did a great shoot, you know, special for Prada, where everyone, all the models were over 80. And we did a lot of shoots with people with different bodies, types. The prevailing currents that, you know, I remember the Dove soap adverts, obviously, you know, the you know, women, natural shape, whatever. I remember them being, feeling like quite a big moment, but you know, I've, I've thought hard about this. I looked at it and I don't, you know, I don't see the fashion industry changing fast enough. So maybe that should be my priority. Maybe it's part of the moral quadrant. I should add a fifth bit, a fifth bit, which is sort of adjusting culture so that, you know, young girls don't feel, and boys, it's not just young, you know, but young girls don't feel pressurised to look a certain way. Well, you're definitely in the right position to do it from where you're at in the... Uh, fairly, fairly empty BBC building. That you're in right now? Oh, completely. Do you want to see it's destitute? I've come up. So this is the seventh floor. This is the power. This is where the power is at. Oh, That's wow. Where, like, the super powerful people exist. And these are the meeting rooms. And, you know, I'm talking about my priorities. I'm so, I'm so, I'm getting up so early on such little sleep. The other day, this is so random, I went, you mustn't tell anyone, although we're saying this on a podcast, <laughs> I went in this room and in that corner of that room that I'm showing you right now on this <laughs> Zoom call, which has got a video, I went and slept over there on my own for 20 minutes oh, man. in the whole of, and while well, this empty BBC cavity rumbled around me. Um, but anyway, don't tell anyone that. 
but I was I was really knackered. Yeah, no, I generally no, try and sleep no. in the one show studio because um, one show studio, the one show dressing rooms because they're pitch black. Anyway, you got to get that sleep in where you can. I love sleep. Sleep is my priority, but I don't. I mean, just I think it's a, a chapter of your life where the old hobs of life kind of raging. The me, the me bit, which definitely includes sleep, um, is, is turned right down. So I don't, I don't get enough sleep. But um, it's all right. In ten years' time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. It's part of my punctuated year. I'm gonna go off these weekends in beautiful places and leave kids behind, <laughs> and then sleep. sleep for sixteen hours. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. You excited about that? I'm excited about that. That is the dream now. That is literally the dream. Um, finally, what's an area you want to improve on? Um, so much, so much. Um, I want to improve on talk, talk, God, talking very um, honestly. It's like too honestly. I want to improve on my capacity to really, really immerse myself in the blessings and glory of the present and not be so driven by the future uh, that I forget to feel good about the journey what's a metaphor um because obviously i'm talking in metaphors um i want to enjoy the journey rather than the destination and realize that actually there isn't one destination other than death there's just lots of destinations on the way and the destinations on the way accumulated are, are the journey and i kind of want to so living in the present so i've got this thing where sometimes i go on holiday and i realize after the holiday I love holidays. That's my top priority. If you want to know what my top priority is, it's going on holiday with people I love. I love to go on holiday, drinking pina coladas in the Caribbean, listening to reggae, drinking rum, watching cricket. That's my priority right now. Um, and I sometimes almost appreciate holidays more afterwards with these sepia-tinged memories. But one of the smartest things that anyone ever said to me is a really close friend of mine called Brooke, who is is the who lives in New York. She's called Brooke Lewis. She's an amazing human being. So the trouble with you, Mo, is you see the future as a memory. That's one of the cleverest things anyone's ever said to me. So learning how to live in the present and not see it as a future memory is one thing. And the other thing is just um, slightly taking the... I want to improve on sort of taking the pressure off my kind of constant doubt as to whether or not I'm fulfilling the promise of my parents when they came to this country when I was three years old. That's that's a quite, not crippling, but that's a really big thing. You know, the reason I'm driven in my material career, if not my moral career, though my moral career as well, is because I really feel like, you know, I've had this extraordinarily fortunate life and, you know, I owe it to my, owe it to my parents to um, fulfill the, uh, the sacrifices and the decisions they made to come to this country when I was little. So, that's an enormous thing I think about every day. You know, they're my screensaver. I talk to them every day and I, I, I probably should. It's been great. It's the reason I'm who I am and I like being who I am. Um, uh, but I should probably just dial that down a little bit. Do you think that there's a complex answer? <laughs> yeah, it's a great answer. And I'm sure that one that a lot of people will, will resonate with a lot of people. Do you think those two areas are related? Oh, they're the same thing, really. Yeah, they're the same thing. They're, yeah, that's really well put. They're, they're they're both about kind of feeling that you're living a certain kind of life, uh, a life which is a kind of moral kind of worth and glory and justifies. I think we're, we're shaped we're shaped by our experiences as as kids, you know. And I'm 
and like the characters around us and, and my parents, you know, who are my ultimate heroes, absolutely shaped me and, you know, made very clear that yeah, they're, they're wonderful. They're not, by the way, they're not, um, they're very, very demanding growing up, especially my dad, but they're not at all difficult or demanding now. They're wonderfully soft, loving Indian parents. But um, yeah, my kind of determination to do well and be driven, which is where this whole kind of obsession about the future comes from, is also about, yeah, my relationship with my parents is feeling this need to kind of justify their sacrifices. So yeah, they're, they're the same thing. You're right. You're right. I found a verbose way of saying the same thing twice, basically. <laughs> no, I think they're very different. I just, they do seem potentially, well, you said it yourself, related. What can you do to live more in the present? And what are you going to do? What steps are you going to take? Um, what do you know that works for you? So what works is, um, so I'm addressing that. I'm, um, I go in and see my kids I sort of tiptoe in and see them every night before I go to bed stare at them I did this wonderful thing the other day where I just I was you know because I have to get up at four o'clock this week I am um, going to bed at eight don't sleep till much much later sadly but um I just went into my daughter's room and just sat on the bed opposite and just stared at her for ages and got, felt very emotional and felt you know that that was to you know to have a healthy child is the greatest blessing our species has ever known I think um well and actually to have healthy children or healthy parents um and so doing that spending slightly more time doing that is um one thing i can do about living in the present um there's another separate thing which is about our relationship with technology which is a subject very close to my heart where i try to i really recommend to some of your listeners if they haven't already try and compartmentalize the day so that there are long periods when they're not looking at their phone, not looking at social media, where they delete people from their social media feeds that they don't want to follow or that make them feel bad. I, I always where they recommend just, that to people. Do you? Well, yeah, of a like mind. This sort of digital cleansing is wonderful. That, I think that's a really good, that's a really good thing. Just, just get rid of the hate, you know, don't need it. Um, it's so weird. It's so weird. This, you know, I mean, we are the species that became a God and yet we can't emancipate ourselves from, from nature. But if you'd said, hundred years ago, you know, we're going to spend all of our time looking at these pixelated screens with these bombardments of hate and abuse and trolling. I mean, it's just, it's so weird. It's so strange. So um, reconnecting with the things that actually matter is something I recommend. But um, on the, on the deeper psychological stuff about letting go of concern and anxiety and guilt as to whether or not you're living. So when people say living your best life, I don't mean by that the way, what most people mean by it. I mean like what are you doing morally are you are you justifying the sacrifice your parents made I don't know that necessarily what I can do about that you know because no amount of kind of moral achievement not that I've achieved anything moral uh, particularly as my dad will forever tell you but no I don't think any particular amount of achievement is going to make me feel like I've you know I can relax a bit I think it runs pretty deep but um you've probably got some sound advice on that well so much I guess part of it is always reminding yourself of the contributions that you're making and being present in those contributions. So rather than it, as you say, sort of with the charity, rather than it being always the outcome, if you feel more present in what you're doing at the time in terms of contribution, then maybe you'll start to connect to that more and value it yourself a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, rationally, I know in the moment 
that I'm there and it's a wonderful thing. I guess it's just a question of sort of, you know, enjoying that. Yeah. It's, I think it's a, yeah, I think, yeah, you're right. But it's a psychological thing. It's a sort of, it's a, it's a preparedness to sort of enjoy something as a thing in itself. Actually, I, I do feel that when I'm overseas uh, on, you know, I'm on holiday, which hopefully we can one day do again. Um, you know, when I'm away with my family, I, yeah, I, that's when I feel centered and, and present. So in fact, my priority right now, I talked about getting to the Caribbean and drinking rum is organizing a, my mum's 70 in a few months. And, um, I hope you're not listening to this, Mum. Am I, is she going to listen to this? Mum, if you're listening, just close your ears for... Count to ten and close your ears right now. Ready? Stop Stop cheating. Do it now. Go. I'm going to, um, I'm going to organise an absolutely... I've, we've got an absolutely amazing week of joy with my brother, his wife and kids, uh, and my mum and dad, where we're going to go down to the southwest. I don't know why I'm whispering. I mean, I'm literally sat on the seventh floor of the BBC. This is really fucking surreal. Sorry, I swore, Mum. Um, but yeah, I'm going to organise some special time, and uh, for that week, I will be very present. Amazing! So more holidays, basically prioritising holidays. holidays when we're allowed. Big. What's your priority right now, Dolly? Yeah, Dolly and rest as well. I've been doing a lot of work in lockdown, and a lot of work without any childcare. And I am naturally very driven and I naturally drive myself to burn out quite often, which is probably why I'm quite good at working with people who experience that because I know what I know how easy it is to do. So my priority right now is rest. I'm off to Cornwall next week. I'm going to switch off my phone. I'm going to switch off social media uh, and take a break. So, yeah. Where in Cornwall? Penzance. All the way down to the very bottom. Yeah, 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 yeah. It takes a long time on the train. It takes a long time to yeah, drive. Eight, eight hours. Six, six hours. Is that all? Mm. If you're lucky. Well, if you're lucky. Well, you might be lucky now. <laughs> my wife, do you go A303 or M4, M5? No, I'm not really asking that. My, 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 <laughs> Don't, because we can have a long my, chat about that we, if you want. We can have a long chat. Do you go past Stonehenge? <laughs> my, uh, my wife is from uh, Exeter, just outside Exeter, so I spend a lot of time going down there. I love the southwest. Mm-hmm. And right. after we had our first honeymoon in Cornwall. Anyway, sorry, I've been rabbiting on, haven't I? How did you've I do? Been, you've been brilliant, Well, You've been brilliant. Of course you have. It's been so nice to chat to you and catch up. Thank you so much. And thanks for helping me understand my own slightly misplaced priorities. I hope it gave you a little bit of insight. You definitely gave me some good insights. Some wow, good stuff to fun. think about. Thanks, Lily. Thank you, Amal. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode of Priorities, I'd really appreciate it if you could make it your priority today to hit subscribe and also rate and review as this helps other people find it. Need a little incentive? Well, I'm offering five free spots for my online four-week course, Home to Self, which starts on the 1st of August. This course will help you overcome anxiety and stress and view uncertainty as an amazing opportunity for growth and change. If your mental health needs to be more of a priority, then this is the course for you. This program is usually worth £149, but all you have to do is rate and review the podcast, send a screenshot of your review to prioritiespodcast at gmail.com by Friday the 24th of July, and you'll be added into the ballot for a free spot. Thank you so much for listening. Take care.